Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to begin 2 Corinthians today. And chapter 8, but before that, we usually do some talking about some of the things that have gone on this week. And of course, this was the week of Thanksgiving in uh, the year 2019. Even though the message that we're going to be talking about is pretty timeless, uh, we want to relate it to today. You know, when Christ began to preach the kingdom of God is at hand and that we were supposed to repent and seek it, He was also saying to the Pharisees who were in charge of the government of Judea at that particular time, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. And I'm going to appoint it to another group that was bearing fruit. Now, he's going to take it away from them because they were not bearing fruit. Well, what were they doing that was not bearing fruit? Well, they had a system of Corbin that was making the word of God to none effect. And that system of Corbin, Corbin means sacrifice. They had a system of sacrifice that was making the word of God to none effect. And what was their sacrifice? Well, it was taxes. They were taxed on what they produced. Ten percent of everything they produced had to go to the Levites. Now, there's always was this tithing, but tithings weren't taxes. Tithings were free will offerings. You got to choose the Levite you were going to give it to. Levites weren't appointed from the top down. You picked them. And, you know, Moses would set them in place, but you would pick the Levite that you had to organize yourselves into the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Now, people talk about Jethro talking about the tens, hundreds, hundreds, and thousands. Well, they knew about that long before Jethro. It's written about in Jewish uh, language way back. And even Nimrod used the tens, hundreds, and thousands to organize the people. But he did it from the top down. He appointed men that ruled over you. And we've talked about that. There's different words in the Hebrew that are translated rule. Some have one resh. Some have two reshes. And there are rulers of rulers. And then there are those who you choose to... Take care of the business of government. And you sacrifice to that individual to take care of the business of government. And the business of government was not to make laws. They already had the laws that was made by God. Don't steal. Don't injure your neighbor. Don't rob your neighbor. Don't murder your neighbor. I mean, these are just basic common sense. And they broke them down to do basic Ten Commandments. You know, uh, don't go into debt. You know, that's what keeping the Sabbath is about. You work first and then you get the benefit of your work. You don't get the benefit of your work and then have to pay back. You stay out of debt. You know, uh, honor your father and your mother so your days will be long upon the land. That means take care of, fatten. The word to mean honor there means to increase. Your Your parents, you are your parents' retirement. So, they already had that law. They didn't need lawmakers, but they needed somebody 
to help bind the people together with love. Because Moses said, love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, John the Baptist said, you take care of your neighbor, not by force, like the Pharisees are doing it, but by love. And people don't do that. The modern churches don't do that. That was one of the stories that was in the news, uh, Southern uh, Baptist Conference of Churches, or Southern Baptist Churches Conference, or whatever you want to call it, was... uh, had a, a big controversial thing. It, it evidently showed up a number of years ago, but it's back again in this critical race theory, they call it, or cultural Marxism. And, and they, they believe in socialism. They believe in communism. They believe in this idea that the government is supposed to provide the benefits, the daily bread. You're supposed to pray to the government for your daily bread. And this this is becoming a pervasive idea even in this Baptist, Southern Baptist uh, convention. And they're winning the votes now. They tried it before and they lost the votes. With most of them, there were some groups, and, and you'll find it in other church groups, where they're looking more and more to the government for their daily bread, the, the daily ministration, to take care of their widows and orphans, to take care of their parents. The government is supposed to do it. That is 100% contrary to what Christ was teaching, what John the Baptist was teaching. They said to do this by charity. But your churches are now saying, no, no, we have the government do it. We're just here to make you feel good. We're just here to tickle your ears. And people are going to these churches and they think they're serving Christ. Many people are going to these churches and thinking that they are believers and that they are saved, but they're going to men who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority. Force the contributions of your neighbor to provide you with the benefits of what used to be called religion. Pure religion is taking care of the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity, rather than through the men who call themselves benefactors, but exercise a force and authority one over the other. John the Baptist said you do it by charity. Jesus said do it by charity. Paul said do it by charity. Paul said don't covet. Peter said that through covetousness you would make yourself merchandise. This is this is Christianity 101. We shouldn't have to explain this. But the people are under a strong delusion. They think they're Christians, but they're actually workers of iniquity. Boy, we just covered it right there. But, you know, I can explain that to people, and people think, oh, yeah, because, I mean, the bondage of Egypt, we were never to return to Egypt again. God says this over and over again. Not supposed to go back that way anymore. What was Egypt? I mean, even the word Egypt means bondage. It means that, you know, 20% of what you produce goes to the government. You have to pay it to the government. They will take it and they will decide what to do with it. That's the bondage of Egypt. Well, you've gone way past that. You got 30, 40, you got people running for president of the United States who want to take 70% from your neighbor. But they have so many poor people now, they got the votes and they want more poor people. That was another thing that came up that people pointed out that a billion dollars went to 
people without social security numbers. Billion dollars of government money went to people without social security numbers. It's actually far more than that. We know there's four or five billion dollars that go to people every year in refunds to people who claim, who had no social security number but had taxes taken out, but they claim dependents. And you can look on their forms and they'll go down, you know, they'll, they'll just name ten dependents. And they'll say nephew, niece, nephew, 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 niece, niece. Doesn't even tell who they are because they don't have any numbers either. And they get over four to five billion dollars back in refunds for that because they claim all these dependents. If you're a citizen with a number, you gotta have the number of your child on that form. <laughs> if you're a non-citizen, you don't. They say, well, wait a minute. Why are they, if you're in Australia and you're an illegal immigrant, you will get more benefits than somebody who worked 40 years, 50 years, and are now retired. You'll get more benefits than them if you live in Australia. Same in a lot of other countries. Why is that? Well, I just, I have had this page up for some time at preparing you. The Clown, uh, Cloward Pevin strategy is what it's called. You can look it up. Cloward Pevin strategy. And, uh, I added a video. A couple of people, they're actually husband and wife, and they had this strategy of bankrupting the social welfare system of the government and to create an economic crisis by bankrupting the system. I mean, they, they wrote about this years and years ago. They've been to the White House many times. They're, they've, they've met with the Clintons, with uh, Obama. They I have a video up there now that where she's praising Obama because he did many of these things secretly in order to bankrupt the government. You know, you actually have them telling you flat out that we're going to give billions of dollars to people who aren't even citizens of the United States because their plan is to create an economic crisis. And you see it with the, the rising debt. And both parties are doing it. They can't help themselves. The same as you can't help yourself in not seeking the kingdom of God, but seeking your own imagination. So we're going to talk a little bit about that because in Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter eight, they they talk about the solution a little bit, and they're talking talking about it in the context of those people who are actually seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, understanding that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's with not just inside you, but within your midst, within your reach. That Jesus is taking it away from people who are claiming to be the kingdom of God, the the Pharisees. And he's going to give it to this other group that he's going to appoint a kingdom to, this little flock. He tells you all this. It's all in there. They just skip over that. And you sit there in your pew like you're actually a Christian. You're not. You're not seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what does that really look like when you're doing that? And so what happens is that people realize that we're back in the bondage of Egypt. Our rights are disappearing rapidly. Our economy is collapsing. We don't own our land. We don't own our children. We don't own our our own labor anymore. They can take and take and take and take and take because we wanted a ruler who could exercise authority, which Samuel 8 tells us, First Samuel 8 tells us, this is what's going to happen. And it's happened. 
And and Peter says to cover this, they'll make you merchandise. Another way to say that is they'll make you human resources. So you're not working, you know, like when I asked my dad, who does he work for? He says, until July 1st, I work for the government. Because he was in a 50% income tax bracket. Half of all the money he made went to the government. And they get their cut first. That's the bondage of Egypt. That's where you're at. Okay. Write it down. Make a note. (laughs) Now, I'm not... How do you get out of Egypt? You don't do it one at a time. You, You repent. You change your thinking. And you do things differently. And chances are there will be hard times before most of you can get out. We're not in hard times yet. These are good times. These are really good times. These are the best times in the history of the world. The standard of living is higher today all over the world than it has ever been. Now, there are areas that are war-torn, and, and have, but there's always been that. And there are people that are poor, and there's, oh, the poor you will have with you always. Christ said that. But, the, you know, the poor in America lived better than the middle class <laughs> in ancient times. As a matter of fact, a lot of the poor eat better today, or can eat better if they make good choices, than the kings of old. So, yeah, we don't live in hard times, but hard times may be coming. But this is why you have to change your thinking and start seeking the kingdom of God, which is here now. It's not where you go when you die. If you take care of the now, tomorrow will take care of itself. If you're looking to tomorrow, you may miss what you need to do today. Our Father talks about the daily bread. The apostles talk about a daily ministration. Religion was how you took care of the needy of your society. It wasn't how you got your ears tickled on the weekends. It wasn't how you felt braggadociously superior because you had the right religion. You were a Mormon. You were a Jehovah Witness. You were a Catholic. And all those other guys, all those non-evangelicals, all those non-Baptists, they, they're the lost sheep. No, you're the lost sheep. If you don't have a daily ministration to take care of all the social welfare needs of your society, of your congregation, you're the lost sheep. You're not living in the kingdom of God. You're not living according to the ways of Christ. If you're dependent upon men who exercise authority for your daily bread, for your wages of unrighteousness, your reward of unrighteousness, your benefits at the expense of your neighbor, you're not a Christian. Now, knowing that is great because now you can change. You can change the way you think and realize we need to take care of one another. We can do it better ourselves. But in order to do it, as Christ said, not just Moses, but Christ said, you have to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and start caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. That was the gospel. That's what you had to do. But because people realize they see the their rights going away and they see the, the, the they're actually starting to wake up enough to realize they're, they're in bondage because they're maybe they're, feel, they're down there where the rubber meets the road and they're feeling the discomfort. They come up with all kinds of solutions. We have a whole section and I could just go on, you know, at preparing you gurus. All these guys who have the answer. 
you know, you know, it's 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 somebody else's fraud. It's it's the Pope's fault. It's the uh, it's the Rothschilds. It's the international bankers. It's always somebody else's fault. And all we have to do is we just go over here to the tree of knowledge and we figure it all out and we fill out these papers and we save ourselves. No, it doesn't work that way. You have to think differently, but you have to think like Christ thinks. You have to start caring about one another. The reason you're in bondage is two. There are two reasons. Covetousness and slothfulness. You're slothful in charity. You're not fervently charitable. You don't care about others as much as you care about yourself. You care about yourself more. You don't love others as much as you love yourself. That's one of the, that's the sloth. And you covet your neighbor's goods, which of course you wouldn't do if you really cared about your neighbor. And, you know, we can go, the other ways that man, that same thing manifests itself, you borrow against the future. You want benefits today and you worry about somebody else paying for them later. So you curse your children with the debt that you're creating daily because you're really not keeping the Sabbath. You're taking Saturday off, but you're not keeping the Sabbath. Because you don't, you've, you've worshiped the metaphor instead of the message. You're following, you know, the, the metaphor instead of the message. And they, that's how they create all these religions. And then they tell you you're saved. And you think you are. And they say, say the magic words and you're saved. And you're not. And you know you're not because you're not doing what Christ said. You're still desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor. You're still willing to take a bite out of your neighbor through the agency of government so that you can be secure. Because you worry more about your security. So what happens naturally, we want to care about other people, other things, you know, you know, like animals, pets. People like to have pets. How many, how many people know somebody who treats their dog or their cat or their cats and dogs or, you know, their parakeet or whatever their pet is, you know, they, I mean, there's a million different kinds of animals, your gerbil. They treat them, they talk about them as if they were almost human. That, that, it's their babies. They usually have, you know, they'll, they'll, a lot of times they'll have two puppies, two dogs. They like little dogs, although it can be a big dog. And they, they're projecting their love towards those animals because it's easy to love an animal. Like, you know, the old joke where you, you know, you put your wife in the trunk and you put your dog in the trunk and you drive around for 10 minutes and then you stop and you open up the trunk and guess who's happy to see you? Well, don't try that. But the reality, the dog's gonna be happy to see you. It's much easier to love a dog because they're, they're, they're not complicated. They're not questioning. But you need to learn to love people. You know, I know people who, who care more about their dog than their grandchildren. Than, than their neighbor. That they, or maybe their cat, or whatever the kind of a person they have. That it's easy. You have this need to love something else that's alive. That's a natural need. And, and people substitute their pets and their animals for the love of their neighbor. But you're not. You know, Christ even says, <laughs> it's not enough to love those who love you. And like I said, the dog's going to be happy to see you. 
Yeah, he's going to he's going to seem to love you. And that you get the feeling that you're loved. But no, you got to love those who don't love you back. You got to love your enemy. Now this is built in. You want to find the kingdom, you need to find that. You need to find that in you. And that takes some sacrifice. That takes some humility. That takes, you know, some patience. And patience is something you learn from practice. You you only become patient with the grace of God. Same as being still. I We teach a meditation. It's on the website. Lots of recordings and everything. And somebody asked me about, you know, they've been met, trying to meditate, but they just, they it doesn't help them get still. The meditation is not meant to get you still. It's meant to show you you're not still. <laughs> that you have confusion coming into your mind and feeding you. And you're reaching for this solution and that solution. And you're climbing around in the tree of knowledge to get the solution for your life. Everybody does it. It's not unique to you. You know, although some people have already settled for a solution. They, they've they've killed off part of their mind, you know, with the drug of society and the opium of religion. Or maybe they've actually used real opium, <laughs> real drugs, or alcohol, or entertainment, or whatever. But the reality is they've turned off a part of their conscience. Now, if your conscience starts to wake up, you may be tempted to climb around in the tree of knowledge for a solution. The solution is Christ. It's the anointing of God. Christ means anointing. You have to become anointed by God. You have to become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the idea of going out and becoming the daily ministration for a congregation and congregations of congregations, you're going to discover you're not as charitable as you would have liked to think. You're not as loving as you would like to think. When you try to sit still and meditate, you're going to discover you're not quite as quiet as you would like to be. Because you're going to see the commotion. If you wanted to go exercise, get stronger, you know, get in shape, and you go and you start lifting weights or something. You're going to find out those weights are heavy. You get tired. It's like the person who says, well, I stopped exercising. Because when I exercised, I saw how out of shape I was. <laughs> no. It's an exercise. It, the, the, the meditation doesn't make you still. God makes you still. The meditation makes you aware that you're not still. It's the same as exercising makes you aware of how out of shape you are. Sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands to practice love for one another shows you how little love you really have. And people want to bail. No. You must persevere. You must put your hand to the plow. You must keep on. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, I mentioned in the earlier part of the show, Cloward and Piven. It's uh, C-L-O-W-A-R-D dash P-I-V-E-N strategy. And you, if you look up, if you Google it, you'll find out a lot about it. If you uh, look at preparingyou.com, preparingyou.com, uh, and look up that in the search engine there, you'll find the article. And then, of course, there's other articles associated with it. And like I said, I just put up a short little 43-second video of uh, Francis Piven which is the wife bragging 
about how Obama is covertly fulfilling their strategy, which was to bankrupt government so they could bring in a socialist government. They, they're, they're deluded. They think that socialism will end poverty. And if you just look at history, you'll know that socialism doesn't end poverty. It makes everybody poor. <laughs> and, that's a, uh, and it also gives power to the elite. And people like uh, Cloward and Piven, Richard Cloward and uh, Francis Piven, they're the useful idiots. They're deluded. They're smart, but, uh, you know, but they're deluded. They think they're, th- that they're going to, you know, get rid of the poor and make the world a better place to live. Although anybody who studied history would know this is not true. And this is not what's going to happen. And I put up another page. I haven't done any proofreading on it yet. It's pretty extensive. On Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn is along those same philosophies. He, he's pro-socialism. And he's been changing the way in which Americans view history. They didn't start with Howard Zinn, but he's been doing it. He's been rewriting history, and he's created a false story of history. And like I said, this is Thanksgiving, and I've improved the article we have on Pilgrims and Strangers, which you can also find at Preparing You, that goes and tells you what the Pilgrims are really doing. I mean, I was... Coming across these articles that are coming to me in Facebook about the pilgrims, you know, being such bad, racist, uh, you know, genocidal people. And you people have no idea what the pilgrims were doing. <laughs> I mean, they weren't all saints, uh, but neither were the Indians. And, uh, and they really, what they're doing is they're climbing around again in the tree of knowledge. And they're just getting a branch here and a branch there, and they're constructing a whole scenario of history out of these little bits and pieces that they get. And I really don't know hardly anybody. There has been a few historians that have been digging a little bit deeper and finding out some of the stuff behind the scenes that was going on with the pilgrims and uh, what was really happening there. And like I said, history is the story of good and bad people. And there were good and bad pilgrims, there were good and bad strangers, there were good and bad Indians, and this whole intersectionality where you're going to put all the Indians are good and all the Europeans are bad. (laughs) That doesn't work that way. There were good Europeans and bad Europeans. There were good Indians. There are people who are good and bad at different times in their life and in different moments of their life. And I'm sure you could probably find... Richard Cloward and Francis Piven doing nice things and good things. They probably, you know, she looks like a real pet lover. She may have, she may love her cats. But she doesn't know what she's doing when it comes to pressing forward to force Americans to accept socialism, which will eventually lead to totalitarianism. And we, anybody who studied history, if Zinn was really a historian, and we point this out in the article on Howard Zinn, If he was really a historian, he would know from the historian of historians that if you create a system where the people are coveting their neighbor's goods, even if it's only from the rich neighbors, of course, you know, you you can't do what... You can take all... You can take 150% of all the money that the rich people have and you still don't have enough money for all their social welfare programs. You have to take from the middle class. 
and you won't have enough. It will bankrupt the system. It bankrupt Rome. It bankrupt the democratic uh, city-states of Egypt. It's going to bankrupt, it bankrupt Venezuela in a very short period of time. <laughs> and it's literally already bankrupted the United States. It bankrupted the United States back in the 20s. We're just, we're just now, you know, kind of in free fall. You know, they move the sidewalk back, but we're headed for it. And, uh, and what's the answer? Change government? Well, you can't change government till you change people. And you can't change people unless you're a tyrant or you're Christ. And what the people have to do is desire to be changed by the character of Christ, this anointing of Christ, this spirit of God. You have, you will be changed by it. You cannot save yourself. You have to be changed by it. So yeah, you should sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Yes, you should meditate and try and be still. Not because the meditation will make you still, but because you will realize how unstill you are. You exercise to pit your muscle against muscle. To, because you, and in that process you realize how weak you are. Well, the muscle of a Christian is Christ. It's the anointing. Lord, Lord, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, I can tell you, because you've forsaken him. We talk about, you know, he says, you go this way, you're going to have a leader who's going to take it, take it, take it, take it, take it, take it, take it. And that's where you're at. Okay? Like I said, write it down. Make a note. You're back in the bondage of Egypt. You have leaders who take and take and take and take and take and take. What's the solution? Cry out to God. He says right there in that instruction that I'm not going to hear you. So crying out to God is not, you know, complaining is not really enough. You have to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start listening to the cries of others. That's how you get God to hear you. If you will not hear others, he will not hear you. The reason, if you are coveting other people's goods, he's not going to be your armor. It, 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 there's no trick to it. Anybody who is, is, comes to you and is telling you it's somebody else's fraud, you know, it's those darn Rothschilds, you know, it's you know, it's whoever. I mean, there's a long list. I, like I said, we have a whole list of. You know, gurus are telling you it's this guy and that guy and it's this person's fault and it's, they're never telling you it's your fault. It is your fault. Because you're slothful and covetous. Slothful in what? Loving your neighbor as yourself. You're slothful in forgiveness, which is why you're not forgiven. You're not forgiven because you said the magic words. That's like you saved yourself again. You're forgiven only when you forgive others. And you have to really forgive others. Not fake forgiveness. And the problem is people are listening to the fake good news. It's not the real good news. It's the fake good news. Now, to be fair, anybody talking about Christ is going to be talking about some things that you probably need to know. But if they're not telling you the whole truth, they're telling you a lie. Because that's the definition of a lie. Is something missing the whole truth. You need to know the whole truth and provide for it. Patrick Henry, prophet 
of the early America, <laughs> said, need do, as for me, I will know the whole truth and provide that I may provide for. That, you know, he gave that speech more than once. And that's what you need to know is the whole truth. And the truth is, you haven't been going the way of Christ. You're not a real Christian, but you can become a real Christian if you repent and start seeking the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is at least a network of people who sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands practicing, exercising love, not just for those who love them, not just for their dogs and cats, not just for their children, but for even their enemy. And something takes place. You, uh, An opening takes place in your heart when you start to do this, where God can now dwell in you. And he will change you. He will bring the peace. He will bring the stillness. He will bring the salvation. But you have to seek it. It's a process. You have to walk the walk. You have to exercise love. You have to exercise forgiveness. You have to exercise patience. Love is patience. Love is charity. Love is sacrifice. You have to do that. And the early church were those people, the story of the early church we find in the epistles, were those people who were doing that. The rest of the world were doing things like Piven and Marx and and other socialists. They were trying to create free bread for the masses. By either taking something away from somebody else or borrowing something against the future. That's not going to work. That's going to turn the people into perfect savages and bring about despots and tyrants. You know, I mean, people, you know, while I said this is the best time in the history of the world to live, it's fast, quickly moving away from that. You might go back to the 50s and 60s, and but, you know, it's a big planet. But the reality is there's probably more slavery today, more people in slavery, in bondage today, than ever before in the history of the world. You know, only about 4% of the people in America, in the United States, in the early part of the the uh, the republic, only about 4% of the people ever even owned slaves. Indians owned slaves when the pilgrims got here. Those Indians who, you know, that that uh, sometimes were massacred by uh, the Europeans, their tribes owned slaves. Their tribes invaded other tribes and brutally murdered other people on a regular basis. That their White Pine Confederation states right in it today. You can go look that up. We have copies of it down at Preparing You professed the idea of manifest destiny. Anybody who did not agree with their confederation could be conquered, all their weapons taken away from them, they could be enslaved, they could be actually annihilated, according to the way they wrote down that confederation. I don't believe the original authors of it thought that way, but 
That's the way they were interpreting at that particular time. And they were doing that. Which is why the Indians embraced the pilgrims. Squanto and Somerset were sent there by an opposing company. With the whole story, we I, I can't say the whole story, but a lot more of the story is on our Pilgrims and Strangers page. But they were they were brought to that spot. And that was one of the supposed historians were saying that they were in the wrong spot and they didn't know where they were and they were wandering around in the Atlantic. They knew exactly where they were. And they had bribed the captain to take them there. Because <laughs> they had another captain from a rival company that had brought Somerset and Squanto there to help them. They hoped to have two ships and let the strangers go on and they would be there and create a colony outside of the land patent of the king. They were separatists. They were trying to get separate. And they were using their strategy, just like all these people today that you see out there trying to separate themselves from the system, using their strategy. Use the strategy of Christ, which is the strategy of love for one another. That's the answer. That's the solution. And... Some of the pilgrims learned that. And they survived. And many of them did not survive. And many of the Indians who had lessons to learn did not survive. But many of the Indians did survive. A lot of them you don't even know they're Indians anymore. They just, they just come down to society and you, you can't tell that they're Indians and they don't even care about tribal status. But they are souls of God. You know, we're all in this journey together. We're all pilgrims. The question is, which way are you headed? You're headed towards the kingdom of God and the liberty under God, or are you headed towards tyranny and destruction? Well, the way of God is the way of love and the way of sacrifice and the way of Christ, which was the way of sacrifice and the way of forgiveness. And so that's what you, and, and sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, doing what the early church was doing, and doing what Christ said to do, which the modern church is not doing, will bring you face to face with what you have not yet learned about the gospel of the kingdom. So anyway, I, like I said, we're going to go into 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And, uh, we've, we don't have much more Corinthians to do, but anyway, in that chapter, we can see, moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now, you know, like, what's with the old English, do you wit? <laughs> what's that word, wit? Well, it, you know, I, I like the King James for one of the reasons I like the King James. I mean, it's not perfect. But I like it because of the fact that it makes you look up words a lot of times. Because you don't know what those words mean. But that word wit, make known, declare, certify. That's the way it's normally translated. And, and it means to make known. And so he's talking about brethren. We do you to make known the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. He'd been to Macedonia and he's telling you what 
what happened with them. I mean, Macedon, the churches of Macedonia, or at least Macedonia, is mentioned about 20, 22 times in the Bible. And, you know, it's kind of really part of that area up there around Greece. And, and he goes on to, to say in the next verse, how that in a great trial of affliction, there were difficulties traveling around or passing around through the Roman Empire. Like we said, there were, there were famines, dearths, uh, economic difficulties. And they, they had this trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Now, what's he talking about? They they were learning what it meant to take care of one another in hard times. The hard times that they were seeing going in waves through the Roman Empire was strengthening the Christian resolve. Now, of course, many Christians fell away. And they went back to get the free bread of Rome. Uh, but others, through their liberality, actually that word that, that you see translated liberality, it, and that's a little harder to understand. It's translated simplicity more than liberality. But it's also translated singleness and bountifulness. And even once it's translated liberty itself. So what does it actually mean? It talks about the virtue of one who is free from pretense and hypocrisy. Single-mindedness. Well, these these guys, these gurus that always have these solutions, that's not simplicity. Christ is simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. Forgive so that you may be forgiven. Sacrifice and hear the cries of others, sacrifice to take care of one another like the Good Samaritan, so that God will hear you. It's that simple. And the people in Macedonia were figuring this out. So, what I'm trying to do is get everybody else to figure it out. (laughs) But, one of the things in figuring it out is you have to realize that you don't have it figured out now, and you still have some more figuring to do. And in the process of seeking the kingdom, you will come face to face with what you do not know. In the process of exercising your muscles, you will come face to face with the muscles that are not strong. You, you might not realize it till the next day when you feel the stiffness of those muscles, but it's a process of challenge and growth. You know, there are many people who have come to the network and have fallen away. And they have fallen away because they met a wall where they could not forgive. Or they did not want to step over that wall. They didn't want want to go farther into themselves. Because really the process of seeking the kingdom is the process of cleaning out the temple of God, which is you. You have to come face to face with your shortcomings with your weaknesses, with your selfishness, with your unforgiveness. You have to see those things. And if you try to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and become the welfare of righteousness at the table of Christ, you're going to come face to face with 
your sloth. You're going to come face to face with your unforgiveness. You're going to come face to face with your selfishness. And you will either admit it in tears of mourning or you will end up weeping and gnashing of your teeth outside of the kingdom. And God will not be with you. It's up to you. It's an individual walk that you need to take together. So in verse 3 he says, For to their power, and that's the word dunamis, because they have several words they translate into power. I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, willing of themselves to do what? That liberality, uh, uh, taking care of one another, but not just taking care of one another. In, in verse 4 we see, praying us with much Entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Who are the saints again? Those are the ones called out. People always talk about, well, we, we think we want to go to a church. And they think of a church as a place or a building or an institution. The church is the called out. That's what it's the ecclesia. It's the people called out, like the Levites were called out. They had to meet certain qualifications of Christ, which are not what you see listed in Timothy and Titus. Those are not the qualifications of Christ. Those are the characteristics of the men who could be ministers and bishops, or the people who could be ministers and bishops. They had certain characteristics. But the qualifications of Christ is something much more. They, they, Jesus said, you cannot be one of my disciples unless you do da, 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 da. And he gave several different qualifications. And the amazing thing is, uh, they're the same criteria that was given to the Levites by Moses. And I can show you in the early church fathers writing that the church took the place of the Levites. The problem is that most of the people who study the Old Testament or look at the Old Testament, most of the modern Christians, they don't know what the Levites were supposed to be doing. They look at the Pharisees and think that the Levites were supposed to be piling up rocks and killing sheep and setting them on fire. And, that, you know, burning incense and wearing robes and all these things. The Pharisees unmoored the meaning uh, from the truth. I mean, they, they unmoored the metaphor and they followed the metaphor rather than the truth and the meaning of the ritual. They had the same rituals and ceremonies built on the metaphor rather than the meaning. I don't know how many different ways I can say it if you kind of put it together. Realize that they were, they were followed, they were worshiping the symbols because words are symbols of ideas. They were worshipping the symbols rather than God himself. If they were worshipping God himself, they would have recognized Christ. But people worship their churches. They worship their version of the Bible. They worship their catechisms, their doctrines. 
They're not worshiping God. If they were worshiping God, they would have a daily ministration based on faith, hope, and charity rather than one based on force, fear, and violence. They're, they're actually under a strong delusion and become workers of iniquity. People don't like me to tell them that. And they think I'm mean when I tell them that. But I, as many as I love, I rebuke. I am telling you, you're not doing it right so that you can change and start doing it right. So anyway, in that verse 4, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift that they're going to be giving to the saints. The, the men who are called out. The men who are the highest ministers of ministers of ministers. Not rulers like you have today. You would not have all these rulers today. You would not be on the verge of a collapsing economy and a bankrupt society and, you know, a community with bankrupt morals. You would not have that if you had actually, if all the people that say they are Christians were actually doing what Christ said, the world would be different. Way different. Unbelievably different. But they're following a strong delusion. They're following false doctrines. They're actually becoming workers of iniquity. And so therefore they do not have the fellowship of the saints. So, you know, I mean, even the word fellowship, uh, in the Greek it's koinonia. It's, it's also translated communion. Communication, distribution, etc. Contribution. The communion of the church should be the entire social welfare of all Christians. But it's not. They go to the men who exercise authority. And so therefore they are under authority. They are merchandise. They are human resources. We'll be right back. Be there. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're in Second Corinthians chapter 8. And we're looking at the church of Macedonia. And of course the church in Corinth. And we're trying to figure out what they were actually doing. How they were actually functioning as the congregation of God. Because the church was the saints. The church, in its specific sense, was the the called out. That's what it means, ecclesia, called out. But they were only called out for the purposes of Christ, which was to serve the people who would gather in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and began to walk in the way of Christ. That's what Christianity was called, the way. So all those people were going to walk in the way of Christ, in the fellowship of Christ, in the communion of Christ. That same word, fellowship, is also translated communion. So when they said there in that verse 4, take upon us, you know, when I say take take upon us, those words actually are not in the original Greek. The... The translators put that in there to try to smooth out the translation so that you could understand it. But then they take a word like fellowship, which is also translated communion, and they translated fellowship. Well, what is it? Is it fellowship or communion? Because communion has to do with your daily bread, your daily ministration. You go to your modern churches, and their daily ministration is with the men who exercise authority. 
It's with the men who call themselves benefactors, but they take from your neighbor to provide you with benefits. So they take from your children's future to provide you with benefits. That's not, that's not the way of Christ. That's not the way. That's the way of Caesar. But it's not the way of Christ. Christ was doing it this other way through charity. And if you're not living through charity, you're not following Christ. So anyway, if you're not seeking to live through charity, you're not even repentant. (laughs) If you're not realizing that it's wrong to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, you haven't repented. And so, you got to go back to repent and then seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Okay, so he's saying would receive the gift and take upon us that gift, the fellowship, that communion, that sharing of the ministering to the saints, to the other called out, the ones who are separate. Saints means separate. It doesn't mean that they have a stamp of approval from the Pope. It means that they are separate. That's what the word meant back then. But this ministering or daily ministration, uh, you know, that's actually the word ministry is also translated ministration. Ministrating. That, that's, that's what it means. But they, they're, they're Macedonia sending an offering. They had a great deal of difficulty and trials and afflictions, but they were going to send a gift with Paul to the saints. In verse 5 he says, And this they did, not as we hoped, not as we desired, not as we wanted, but first gave their own selves to the Lord. You know, these are the born again guys. You know, they, they had given themselves over to the Lord. They had accepted the Lord. Not just in their heads, mentally, but they had actually made room in their hearts and minds for the Lord to write upon their hearts. And then he says, and unto us by the will of God. So in other words, they were giving this because they chose to give it. And they chose to give it because they had already let God into their hearts. And this is this the kingdom that of God that operates based on the righteousness you're supposed to be seeking. It's free will offerings. It has to be free will offerings. You cannot have a free society that does not take care of its needy with anything other than free will offerings. If you do it through force, you will have tyrants and dictators. And Americans have forgotten that, steadily forgotten it more and more and more, for the last 100 years until now, most of the children graduating from high school and in college, they think socialism is good. Socialism, by its nature, is coveting your neighbor's goods. It's, it's By its nature, it's forced. You cannot be an anarchist, somebody who doesn't want rulers, and want socialism. Because socialism is a political system that requires the forced distribution of the bread from house to house. Christianity is the charitable distribution from house to house from men who are not allowed to exercise authority. We may hope you contribute. 
But you have to choose to do it. And we want you to choose it because God is in your heart, not because we guilt you. So he goes in verse 6, In so much that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. That, that he's talking to the Corinthians. We want you to decide to give because God is in your heart. Because you've let God into your heart. How do you let God into your heart? Well, you have to forgive your neighbor. You have to care about your neighbor. Enough at least to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands to start exercising that love. You know, I mean, how much exercising of love do you get when you go and sit in the pew in your local church and listen to somebody else preach and give music? This is, what I'm telling you now, this is my rebuke. This is maybe my sermon. But this is not church service. I mean, I might be providing a service by that rebuke. But the church service is when we actually take care of one another. And you actually begin to heal one another. And become the good Samaritans for one another. And set the table of the Lord. And weave your wedding garments. So that you will be acceptable to the Lord. Because if you don't put your wedding garments on. And you come to the wedding feast. Which is another whole subject. I mean people don't even understand that. Because they're all lost in the metaphor. I remember when I explained that back in 2002. In Colorado. At the agreement conference. And I didn't do it till it was over. And I had the last hangers on. And I, you know, I had one of these legal beagles. Who had been climbing around in the tree of knowledge. Really smart guy. And I asked him a question. And I mentioned it in one of the books. In the, I think it's in Covenants of the Gods. Yeah, I don't mention this particular incident. But I mentioned what he and I'm not giving you a hint on purpose. <laughs> but I said, how can these two things become one? And he says, that's impossible. He's looking at it from a legal point of view. And then I, I told him how it could become one. And this is, this is where you will finally have liberties, when those two things that cannot become one become one. Well, I'll give you another hint in metaphor form. At the wedding feast. <laughs> That's how they become one. Anyway, you're not ready for that yet. You haven't learned to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. You haven't learned to do the will of God yet. You haven't learned to forgive one another. You haven't completely repented yet because you don't even know what you're supposed to repent of. But you're on that journey and you're beginning to discover that. And so... I'm talking about this. I'm walking around the elephant in the room. <laughs> and I'm pointing out that you guys don't have a daily ministration like the early church. You have a daily ministration like the Pharisees. You have a daily ministration like Caesar. And that's why you have tyrants. And that's why you're back in the bondage of Egypt. And that's why you're the lost sheep. But you can change that if you're willing to admit you're in error. It's, it's humility is the key to liberty. 
there's more to, you know, it's one of the notches in the key to liberty. <laughs> it's humility. There's another notch, forgiveness, and another notch, sacrifice. You won't sacrifice for your neighbor until you forgive your neighbor. You know, so the people that are telling you that it's their fault and it's their fault and it's their fault, they're they're leading you astray. Don't follow those people. You know, the guy who says it's your fault, <laughs> you know, I mean, there, you know, blame is not like pie. If I cut up a pie, you can get a piece and he can get a piece and he can get a piece. But blame, you are 100% responsible for your part in the blame. And your parents are 100% responsible for their part in the blame. And the Rothschilds are 100% responsible for their part. <laughs> I've just picked on the Rothschilds. Uh, I mean, you'd be shocked to find out who's related to the Rothschilds today, most of you. And I can tell you, because I actually know some of the people that are related to the Rothschilds that are prominent in America and are part of his, their banking empire, although they've had their outs and falling outs and their suicides. <laughs> Like Jeffrey Epstein, there there were there are other more questionable suicides than Jeffrey Epstein, <laughs> but, but that's that's a distraction. That's not going to help you find the way. You know, that's all campfire talk. You you need to find the way for you, and the way for you is to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, which means you have to create that network of charity that we see between Macedonia and Corinth and Corinth and Ephesus and Ephesus and Jerusalem. That was going all over the known world. Except now it has to be between Sydney, Australia and London and Ontario, Canada and and, uh, Venezuela and and Poughkeepsie and all the different places of the world. We need to create that network of charity. And you cannot do that until people are willing to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and become knowledgeable of the way of Christ by following the way of Christ, by walking in the way of Christ. So anyway, he goes on in this, after he was talking about uh, this grace to abound, the same grace to also abound in you. In verse 7 he says, Therefore, as ye abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence, and in your love to us, so that ye abound in this grace also. So he gave this big long list, including this this love and diligence. And uh, that word diligence, you know, it actually appears about a dozen times, but it's, it's only translated diligence about five times. It's also translated business. It's also translated uh, care and earnest care and carefulness. And, and, but it actually means to haste or uh, to, uh, to be this earnestness and diligence 
that you're quick to do what? Charity. You know, and he says, everything in faith. Even the word thing there is, that's added in there. Every faith, every utterance, everything you do should be towards the kingdom. You know, the, the word utterance, it, it, it's, uh, it's translated word 218 times in the Bible. But it, it has to do with not just your words. I mean, the words you say, but it could be the words you write. It could be, you know, what, what I mean, if you're, if you're mute, it, uh, and so therefore you, you're not going to say any words. Well, you would use sign languages. So it's the demonstration. Every demonstration of your faith is a part of that utterance. So when he, he says confessing your faith, it has to do with what you do. And, and James explains all this. He says, you know, judge me by, uh, you know, what I say. You know, judge me, judge my faith by what I do. So people tell me they have faith in Christ, but they trust in government to provide them with their daily ministration, their daily bread, their their welfare, etc. You, you, you need to turn around from that thinking and realize that you cannot save yourself with what you say. That's why Christ was adamant. It's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of the Father. And when they tell you to study to show thyself approved, they, that word actually is most often translated diligent. Be diligent to show thyself approved. Although it's, it's a slightly different word. But it means to be diligent. In what? What you, your faith. You, you can't say you believe in Christ and then go to the men who call themselves benefactors but are simply taking away from your neighbor. It just doesn't work that way. In verse 8 he says, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. Your love. That same word love that we see over and over again in the Bible is also translated 27 times charity. So, you have to prove your charity by charity. By, by the sharing that we see Macedonia doing. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Every time you see the word Christ, that's the word anointed, that's the word Messiah, that's the word for king. Because the kings of Judea, the kings of Israel were anointed. So when he says Jesus Christ, he's saying Jesus the king. In essence, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Now, people don't understand that because they've all led you to believe that Jesus was poor and he was born in in his stables and, you know, all this humility and everything. Well, he, he was born in his stables, but that was, you have to understand how the houses are constructed. If there was a stable below, especially, you know, carved out cave stable below, it was probably the warmest place <laughs> in, in the house at that time. It was also a private place, and it was a common place for guests 
it, 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 it's not that unusual, but it was probably connected to somebody who was very wealthy. And uh, that's where you would, if you're going to have a baby, you would go to the private place to, to have that baby. But there is a lot of evidence that Jesus came from one of the richest families, was at least part of one of the richest families, not only in Judea, but in the Roman Empire. But he made himself poor. Well, that the reason I bring that up is that the same making himself poor was required for him to be the head of the ecclesia to be because he was he was not only taking on the role of Moses delivering back to you the kingship that belonged to every Israelite because he's going to return every man to his family and every man to his possession you have to go back there when the people chose to have a king they went under the authority of the king. And now the king was the father of their nation. And a little bit of the power that was in the hands of the individual fathers of the nation were now in the hands of the king. There was five things you were to put on that king to keep him from becoming too powerful. And that they're listed in Deuteronomy. And we go through them in the books, contracts, covenants, and constitutions. But only one of those five things required in a constitution, if you're going to have a man who can exercise authority, only one of those things is found in the Constitution of the United States. And we point that out in contracts, covenants, and constitutions. I'm not dissing the Constitution. I'm not anti-Constitution. I'm just pro-Christ. Okay? I'm pro-righteousness. I'm pro-God. And God said, you should have put these things in, all five of these things in, and they failed to do so. You could have done it individually, but you failed to even know it because you were going to those false churches that were teaching you some of the truth, but not the whole truth. So anyway, back to this problem of Christ and poverty, is that Christ was supposed to be both high priest and king. Well, Moses wasn't the high priest. His brother was the high priest. And But Jesus is supposed to be the high priest. Well, who was the high priest at the time that Jesus got baptized? Was it the guy in Jerusalem? Or was it the guy out by the Jordan River? Because the laver had been moved to the Jordan River from the point of view of many of the former members of the Sanhedrin who had left the Sanhedrin, and at least according to John the Baptist... And Jesus point, appointed a new 70, a new Sanhedrin, that were getting the baptism of John. And John would have been the high priest, but John had his head cut off, so who was the high priest until John, a new high priest, was chosen? Well, it was Jesus. Because <laughs> he was the one who John the Baptist had designated to follow him. I know somebody who's the CEO of a company uh, and he wants to retire, and he gets to name his successor. Now, it still has to be approved by the board of directors for that corporation, but he gets to name his successor. Well, that's the kind of the way it was with high priest. If the high priest was suddenly killed, his successor would be named by his the, the former high priest. He, he would have already named his successor cause, to follow him. I mean... Augustus Caesar was doing the same thing. He named Tiberius. And then uh, Caligula took place after Tiberius. But then 
Nobody, Caligula never named Claudia. Claudius to be his successor. This is the Praetorian Guard brought him out and said, hey, the emperor's dead. Behold your new emperor. <laughs> but in the case of the high priest before, when John the Baptist was a child, that high priest was suddenly killed. And that was his father, believe it or not. You know, that's a controversial statement. But anyway, the high priesthood went to John the Baptist. And during the same period, most of the Sanhedrin walked out because of the corruption of government. Where did they go? They, they probably were mostly the Nazareans, the Nazarites. And they probably held up John the Baptist as the legitimate high priest. But then along comes Jesus and John the Baptist says, this is the one who is to follow me. Saying that Jesus is to be the next high priest. Because Jesus' father is God and he can do that. You can bring new Levites into adoption. But later on, Jesus is actually headed to be king. They're hailing him as king when he comes into Jerusalem. Highest son of David. Because he also is a son of David. And John the Baptist scratches his head and sends men and says, Are you the one to be what? High priest and king. Yeah. So that's where we're at. So anyway, he appoints the saints. And he requires them to do the same thing that the Levites were required to do. And you can go back and study our article on Levites to find out what that is. But that's why I mention that. That Jesus was rich, but he made himself poor so that he qualified as both high priest and king. And if you knew those five requirements for a king that was to be imposed on every king and read to them every day that don't even show up in the Constitution, you would understand also why he made himself poor. Because they kind of, the king doesn't have to make himself poor, but he's not allowed to make himself rich. <laughs> okay. And today, you go out and look at your politicians in the world. How many politicians began not rich, and are richer after being a politician. You know, if if they're making $150,000, $200,000 a year and they're millionaires when they leave office, something was going on. <laughs> but people don't don't understand. Same as they don't understand Cloward and Piven's plan to bankrupt America, published years ago, explained many times over, they want to bankrupt you through the social welfare system so that they can usher in a tyrannical socialist regime. And they think they're doing you a favor, but they're just useful idiots. And they published it. They told you. It's like Mein Kampf. They told you what they were going to do. And you're all sitting there thinking, well, we're going to vote Republican. We're going to vote Constitutional Party. We're going to do... No. You need to repent and seek the kingdom of God. Now, I don't care who you vote for, but if you're not seeking the kingdom of God, you won't know who to vote for. You don't won't know what to do because you don't get to be a free country by electing a man who can exercise authority over you. You get to be a free nation when freedom is written in the hearts of the people. And uh, you need the only one who's going to write that in your hearts is the God who wants you to be free souls under him. And but his laws, he's only got 10 laws. You could you could make 
you can summarize them all into two laws. But Tacitus tells you, the more laws, the more corrupt the nation. The United States has so many laws, they can't even count them all now. They don't even know how many laws they have anymore. <laughs> so, but in the kingdom of God, you got ten laws, and you can summarize them in two things. To love God, who is a giver of life, a creator of things, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. If you do those two things, all the law will be fulfilled. You cannot do those things unless you love. You're not very good at loving right now, which is why you're not very good at healing and not very good at a lot of other things, and you don't have the full armor of God. You have to practice it. You have to exercise that love for that love to get stronger. It's that way. No pain, no gain, no sacrifice. No, you don't. You don't win a prize. So anyway, we've got a little bit more of this to do, and we're running out of time. <laughs> but uh, you can get on, get on the network, and we'll start showing you the way. And but ultimately, it's God who needs to show you the way when He writes His laws upon your heart and upon your mind. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're in this Second Corinthians chapter 8, and we're really down to about verse 10. And Paul is one of the priests of the kingdom of God. He's one of the saints of the church. He's one of the called out of the church. He was from a rich family. And uh, so was Claudia, and so was Linus. Uh, but uh, no, they were they had uh, literally gone into captivity. Their father had gone into captivity. But uh, then uh, Claudia had uh, ended up marrying Paul's half brother, who was half Roman, because his mother had remarried. Uh, one of the Putins. So, anyway, and, and, you know, he had his nieces there, and they, they were there, and eventually they were martyred under the chaos that went on in Rome and the different emperors that came up. But uh, they, they were the ones who buried, his nieces helped bury, as wealthy, influential people, helped bury many of those Christians who were persecuted when Rome went just perfectly totally savage and started killing people left and right, trying to blame the fire that Nero started on Christians. And even Tacitus writes about this, that uh, knowing that this was one of these false flags that were created to distract the people, and we've talked about that. But anyway, the reality is is that Paul is, is coming here, and he hasn't got to Corinth. This is a letter to Corinth. And he's going to be talking in this chapter and the next chapter about this supporting the saints who are providing this daily administration to charity as opposed to that daily administration provided to Rome, those free bread divided to Rome, that was so important to to Romans and Corinthians and everybody when there was these dearths, these shortages that went through the land. And uh, they went through the land again, like I pointed out, because of economic changes, political changes, wars and rumors of wars, but also because of climate change. And, you know, the the climate actually started, it had warmed, and they had prosperity, and then now all of a sudden it started cooling. And then 
they started to lose crops for a variety of reasons, and there was a shortage of food. And so you either looking to the free bread of Rome, which often did not come, and that tens of thousands of people suffered and starved, and or you were looking to the free bread of Christ. You were eating at one table or the other. You cannot eat of both. Paul's saying this. You're not supposed to eat of things sacrificed to idols from their temples and welfare. You're supposed to be eating of ours. But in order for us to have such a table, we need to have contributions. We need to have, and you need to have the contributions for the same reason you need to hear the cries of your neighbor. So that God will hear you. You need to contribute so that God can bless you. And this is why they're talking about grace. Is this blessing. But anyway, in verse 10 it says, And herein I give my advice. For this is expedient for you who have begun, begun before, not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now, therefore, perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be performance also out of that which ye have. Performance out of what you have. Christ was rich. He made himself poor. Performance out of what you have to do what? To to share your grace with others so that God may share his grace with you. We're talking about spiritual principles that begin to alter the very nature of your being. I saw a story about, you know, nanotechnology and, you know, in your blood, they can actually put these things that go about and supposedly clean your blood. You have that in you now. White blood cells, red blood cells, they're supposed to be going around and fixing your body. The, the nanotechnology is activated with frequencies. In your body, there is activation of the cells in your body with frequencies. Because I actually read just yesterday, I saw the headline, didn't read the whole article, but they, they were talking about how, you know, your compassion can alter the health of your body. Caring about others can actually alter the health of your body. It puts out a frequency. If you if you love your neighbor as yourself, the frequency of Christ, the anointing of Christ can come in you and reside in you. It changes you. It turns on things in you. If you're selfish, if you hate, if you're full of blame and accusation, I mean, that's one of the descriptions of Satan is he's a false accuser. To blame all your problems on somebody else, which you actually, I saw the Elizabeth Warren was out there saying, you're having difficulties in your life. It's because of them. That is the message of Satan. Blaming. And that, of course, was the failing of Adam. It's not my fault, Lord. It's the woman you gave me. <laughs> Blaming somebody else. No. Mea copa, mea copa, mea maxima copa. My fault, my fault. You can do something about your fault. You, that admission, the humility of that admission 
allows the Spirit of God to come in you and begin to turn on the frequency of Christ in you. And and this is the way of forgiveness, this is the way of sacrifice, this is the way of service. Now, every one of you out there probably sacrificed for somebody. Maybe it's just your dog or your cat or your pet. But, I mean, the whole thing, you know, a husband and wife get married, the husband goes out to work, he he struggles against the the difficulties of life, and he is sacrificing himself for his wife. And his wife is at home, and she is sacrificing herself for her children, his children. She, you know, she gets up and she feeds them. She cleans them. She drops what she's doing and goes and takes care of them. She watches over them. This principle of sacrifice, you find it in the animal kingdom. Where the, the animal runs to the aid. The mother bear runs to the aid of her baby bear. This is part, is built into creation. But if you want the fullness of God's creation, the fullness of God's armor, then you have to not just love your wife, your husband, your children. You have to love your neighbor's children as much as you love your own. You have to love your enemy's children as much as you love your own. Then the frequency of God's love can flow through you to the point where greater things than Christ did that you will even be able to do. And this is what Paul is telling them. Let me give you some advice, he says. For this is expedient for you. You've begun the process of exercising the love of Christ. And and many of the churches have done this. That's the milk. You know, many the, even the fake churches do at least that much. There's a lot of gossiping and backbiting and all these other things that go on in their word. That means they're not going to have no, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And we should turn away from that characteristic. But there is some love and caring. We just need to magnify that in the Lord. You have to put down the one-pound weights and start picking up the 20-pound weights <laughs> if you're going to exercise the full armor of God. You can't just be caring about one another with little acts of charity, helping out some little kid in South America. you got to become the entire social welfare of your congregation and your congregation of congregations. This is why Paul, writing from somewhere else, writing to Corinth, is telling them about Macedonia and what they did. Now therefore, perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, you were ready to do it, so there may be a performance also. So you say you love, let's see, I hear the words, let's see the actions. Out of that which ye have, God has given you, you want God to give you more, you have to give, you know, how do you, how does Christ say it's done? This is the same principle. He says it over and over and over again. So many times, I lay down my life so that I may pick life up more abundantly. This is what Paul's telling them. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. 
For I mean not that other men be eased and ye be burdened. That's not his point. I mean not that. But by an equality that now, at this time, your abundance may be a supply for their want. That their abundance also may be a supply for your want. That there may be equality. He's preaching equality and equity. (laughs) But he's preaching it by your free will choice. The, these people of the world, these socialists of the world, they don't want you to have the choice. Not by your will, but by our ruling power over you. We will rightly divide. We will fr- rightly force your contribution. Of course, they tell you they're only going to take from the rich, but do the math. They're going to be taken from you guys too. <laughs> Show me what socialist nation, really socialist nation where everybody is rich. I mean, Sweden tried to go that way and they've rolled back away from that. And they still have serious, serious economic problems and, and weakness in, in, in their own society. And they're headed for trouble as well. I mean, the whole world is going this other direction that they should not be going. So anyway, he wants equality. But see, that's the thing people don't understand. And I go through it in the Howard Zinn article is that there is dis- redistribution of wealth in capitalism. But capitalism is not a political system. It's only an economic system which puts the means of production, which is you, mostly your labor, in your hands. If you want a social distribution deal, that's something separate from capitalism. Christ was a capitalist. He wanted you to also be someone of fervent charity. Because if you are not a fervent charity, you will lose the right to your labor. And see, uh, Piven and Cloward and Howard Zinn hate capitalism. They don't want you to have a right to your labor. They they think that you should all be slaves under their authority. Except it won't be their authority. It will be some stall on the mouth who will run things. So anyway, verse 15. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. What's he talking about? Back in the days of manna. See, we don't understand the manna metaphor. But it's built into the system of God. But you're not in the system of God. You're in the system of Caesar. You want to get in the system of God, you have to think differently. So, it goes on to say another chapter beginning, or not a chapter, but a paragraph beginning with the word but in 16. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care in the heart of Titus for you. For indeed, he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward... Of his own accord, he went unto you. And we have sent with him the brother whose praises in the gospel throughout all the churches. All the churches. All the ecclesia. All the called out. They all know him. The called out know him. And what are the called out? 
They're the government, the social welfare government of Christ that operates by faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence. This is this basic concept is where the conflict of Christianity came into conflict with the way of Caesar. But Jesus was another king and private religion was still legal. It's legal today. You know, one of the things about socialism, you know, socialists want this, you know, common purse, which, of course, the Old Testament tells you runs towards death. We have an article. Look it up at Preparing You, Common Purse. Runs towards death. You know, consent not. They're warning you, don't consent with these guys. But if you really want socialism, they can get together right now and form a socialist religious community where all their wages go into the common storehouse and then are all their needs are taken care of. And they can elect their own socialist government right now. And they will pay less taxes, but they will take care of all the social welfare within their community. They can do that right now. And they would be exempt from Obamacare. They would have their own care system. They can they can set it up any way they want. They can do that. That's you have that freedom right now. Create a cooperative corporation, and you can do that right now. But it won't work on on little tiny scales. If you have other things in common, it'll work for a while. And I can show you examples of where people are actually doing that, and it'll work for a while. But really, what you want is the kingdom of God, and that's what Paul is describing to you and how they were doing it. To the ecclesia, the called out, that that would not get any contributions unless you chose to give them. So you get to pick the guy you think's doing the job, and as soon as you don't think he's doing the job, you don't have to give him anymore. See, out there in the world, once you're in the Roman imperial cult and you join that, you don't like what they're doing. You can't necessarily instantaneously say, "Well, I'm not going to give this week." That that's not permitted. You have to give. And of course that's what the Pharisees had set up with Herod. And that's why it was making the word of God to none effect. Because it took away your right to choose. Your exousia. Your liberty. Which is of God. Which you go read our Romans 13 and you'll understand what I'm talking about there. If you haven't already. So... For indeed, he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and the declaration of your ready mind. So there's this one Paul one of Paul's first jobs with Barnabas was to go out and help move large amounts of funds for distribution to other places that were in need. Avoid this that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us. We, this, this is not us. This is the other churches who have given us this abundance. You know, we're, we're doing our part in the job, but we don't get all the credit. It's the sacrifice of others, and they want you to know that, and he explains this in the next chapter. 
providing for honest things not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So other people are seeing this example of the Christian church providing all the social welfare through charity. They're seeing this. And, and the people in that charitable institution are seeing it as well. These honest things, he talks about, kalios, he says good things, these better things. That, I, I mean, it's translated good, better, honest. It's actually also meet goodly things. Beautiful, handsome, excellent. Word of admiration, these honest things. Why? Because they're provided by charity. And we have sent with them our brother whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things. He's diligent in many things. And we see this word again, diligent. Except this is a little bit different word, diligent. (laughs) This word only appears once. Active diligence, zealous is what it actually means. In many things. But now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and the, and fellow helper concerning you or our brethren be inquired of. They are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. So, this is kind of like a letter of credence that he is sharing all this extra information with you about these brethren. But he's referring to the churches, which is actually, there's not different buildings, it's not different institutions. It's the called out. It's those, those ones who are separate. From the world, who, who live in the world but are not of the world. And this is very important from a legal standpoint. Christ had one of the greatest legal minds. He did have the greatest legal mind in the history of the universe. <laughs> and he understand how this works. But he also understood how it worked spiritually. And you have to do this in spirit and truth. There is no like set formula that you figure out. You have to do it in spirit and in truth. And so, he's telling you that these are also that bringing this message of the called out and the glory of the anointing of Christ. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and our boasting on your behalf. So, he's, he's challenging them to put up or shut up. <laughs> the proof of your love. Because he, and it goes on in the next chapter. We won't read all the next chapter. We don't have the time. For as touching the ministering to the saints, those called out, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your minds, of which I boast of you to them of Macedonia and Achaia, was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked the very many. He's telling them, he goes on and tells them to to take up a collection before we get there, so that if we have people that come with us from Macedonia, they see you're already organized. 
because they were they were taking care of their own social welfare in their local community, but they also had not lost sight of the fact that the church, the kingdom of God, was a network that reached all across the Roman Empire. And this was going to be, and he goes into this in, in somewhat detail in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 9, because it's all one letter, talking about that you do this in hope that others will do it for you. And in the course of history, it became absolutely essential because almost all these places at one time or another, people had to abandon, leave the whole area, and then come back at another time. And uh, and this was, you know, like we started out talking about Corinth. Uh, everybody in Corinth, they were to kill all the men and sell all the women and children into bondage. That was the order. 50 years before Christ. You know, 45 years before Christ. 48 years before Christ was born. That was the plan. And, no, actually it was more than that. It was over 100 uh, years, 140 years before Christ. It was about 48 years before Christ that they started to repopulate Corinth. <laughs> Got my dates off a little bit there. But for 100 years, everybody was gone. So, the reality is this this was going to happen in the years to follow as Rome began to decline more and more. And you'll see this in the years ahead in your own countries, in your own world, that things will decline in one area, but another area you may have to go there. Well, who do you know in the other area? You cannot be these isolated home churches. You have to be this international network of righteousness. So not only that you people within your network see this, but the people in the world see this. Because they need to repent and follow the way of Christ as well. And the more that do this, the richer all will be in Christ. Till then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www dot his holy church dot net